Well, good morning. Again, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors. It's great uh, to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, we are starting a new series, and I have to apologize. You can probably hear that I've been fighting a cold uh, all week, kind of in and out. So endure my voice, and it may crack at times. But uh, we just finished uh, a, a series in the book of Psalms, and now we're starting a new series in Acts this morning. Uh, and so I just want to give you a little bit of a heads up. This sermon is going to be a little bit longer than normal, uh, not much longer, but a little bit longer. Uh, it's going to be uh, an overview uh, to some degree of things that we will address in much more depth as we continue throughout this book uh, over the next few months. But I want to give you a quick introduction uh, to the book of Acts before I read our passage. Acts was written around 60 AD, 30 years after the ministry of Jesus. It was written by Luke, uh, the physician. He was a doctor. Luke was a very educated man. Uh, he was a historian of sorts. He writes with incredible accuracy uh, in this book. And Luke is writing to Theophilus, uh, Theophilus, who, who many scholars think was either uh, a Roman official or a wealthy patron. And Theophilus had either become a Christian or was becoming a Christian. Uh, and, and so Ru, uh, Luke writes this to Theophilus. Now Luke and Theophilus, I don't know if that sounds familiar to any of you this morning, but if it does, the reason is because this is the same Luke as the author of the Gospel of Luke, and Theophilus is the same recipient as the recipient in the Gospel of Luke. So in some ways, Acts is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. It's part two. It's Gospel of Luke part two. Um, and uh, so much so that many people talk about Luke-Acts, Luke-Acts uh, as one letter. Uh, and so uh, that's the kind of background that we're getting here in Acts. Now, I've got to preface and, and say that Acts is not the complete history of the early church. A lot of people think that. Uh, there's a lot of things that have been left out about the early church in the book of Acts. And Acts is not primarily about the Acts of the Apostles, uh, which some of your Bibles may even title the book of Acts that way. Uh, it's not primarily about the Acts of the Apostles. This book is about the Acts of Jesus. It's about the acts of Jesus. It's about the Jesus continuing what he taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. Uh, it's, what, it's the continuation of what Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16. I will build my church, I will build my kingdom, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This book is about God's mission to the world. It's about Jesus the Father and the Spirit, who are the primary actors in the story. Though the apostles in the church have an important role, this is about the acts of God through the church. You with me? So if you will, stand. We will read Acts 1, 1 through 11, which is the portion we're looking at this morning. This is God's Word to us. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem 
and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that that you would come now and that, God, you would give us a picture and a vision of King Jesus and of his kingdom and of what we, your church, get to be a part of. God, would you capture our hearts? Would you capture our minds? Would our lives be different? God, be exalted. Would you speak, Holy Spirit? Come, Spirit, and speak to us. We need to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you can have a seat. Well, there, there are 1.4 million gang members in our country. And there's been an increase in gang membership by 40% in the last five years in our country. The average age of people in gangs is 18 and under. Durham is no stranger to gangs and to gang activity, if you uh, read or heard. But Tuesday, just um, less than a mile from here, a 30-year-old man was shot and killed. Uh, and they think because of gang uh, activity or gang, it was gang-related. I, I don't know if you've ever thought about or done research on why people join gangs. Uh, some join for criminal activity, some because it's, it's a cool thing to do, but most would say they join to be a part of something bigger and larger than themselves. Most join to have a family where perhaps their family has broken down. Many join to be a part of a movement. Now, before you start thinking you would never join a gang, uh, let me challenge those of you who are from perhaps different socioeconomic classes where gangs aren't in your everyday life. Think about what you might participate in uh, that gives you the same sense of community, family, belonging, maybe exclusivity, power, being a part of something bigger than yourselves that may be motivated by the same reason. It could be being a part of a new startup company here in Durham. I'm joining the startup because it's going to be big and it's going to make an impact. It could be a fraternity or a sorority or a certain dorm on your campus. You want to be a part of that. It could be as simple as saying, I want to be a North Carolina Central Eagle. I'm a part of, I'm a part of Central's campus or I'm a Duke Blue Devil. Or I'm a UNC Tar Heel, right? It could be joining a certain club, a certain organization, or serving on a certain board. It could be a part of a band, a musical group, where people love your music and they sing your songs. And all of these things can make you feel like you're a part of something bigger and larger than yourself. Now, I'm not equating startups and gangs. But I am saying that the reason that many participate in a gang or a startup might be the same, to be a part of something big, to be a part of something powerful and influential, something that will make a difference. And that desire, the desire to be a part of a movement, to be a part of something powerful that's going to make a difference, is built into the DNA of every single person, every single one of you. It is a God-given good desire. It is how all of us were created to be. And the question 
is what movement or what mission are you living for? Are you living for the right mission? The book of Acts is about God's mission to the world. It is about God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. And there's nothing more exciting or more powerful or more influential. There is no movement bigger than the kingdom of God. So there's three things we're going to see from this passage in Acts chapter 1. We're going to see the clarity of the mission. We're going to look at the power for this mission. And then we're going to look lastly at the goal of the mission. So let's look first at the clarity of the mission. Uh, The disciples uh, who were with Jesus, they knew the hope of the Old Testament. They knew the hope of Israel. And the hope was that this Messiah King would come and he would establish Israel, the nation, to be this dominant nation that God's blessing would flow through them to the world, through Israel to the world. And that was the hope of the disciples, that this Jesus, who they'd been following for three years, would reestablish Israel. And that in reestablishing Israel, they would become this geopolitical global power. Uh, We see this in the gospel, don't we? If you've ever read through the gospels, Mary, the, the mother of James and John, asked Jesus, Can my boys sit on your right and on your left? When this kingdom comes, can James and John sit on your right and left? She's pretty much asking, can James and John be the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense when Israel is dominating the world, right? But then this king, whom they had been following, is crucified. And they start asking, what? What? I thought we were going to rule. I thought we were going to dominate. I thought we were going to be a global power. Our king doesn't suffer. Our king shouldn't die. Our king shouldn't be conquered. Our king should conquer. And then verse 3 says, Jesus presented himself alive to them after suffering by many, many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The resurrected king, Jesus, spends 40 days with his disciples. And he could have taught many things. It says he taught them about the kingdom of God. And then verse 6, they ask this question, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're pretty much, will you now make us this geopolitical power? Three years with Jesus, 40 days of him teaching about the kingdom of God, and they still don't get it. It's still unclear. They don't understand the kingdom. And I, I dare to say that for the majority of us and for the majority of Christians, our understanding of the gospel and Christianity is quite unclear at times. What do you think many people would say? Churches that are gathered in Durham today, maybe even you, what would you say to this question? Why did Christ come? Why did Christ come? I I, I think the majority of people would say Christ came to live a perfect life of obedience, to die a death on the cross, to rise from the grave so that he can save me from my sin so that I can go to heaven. I think that's the majority of responses that we would get. The scripture tells us Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He taught them how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. Jesus talked about the gospel of the kingdom over and over and over. The gospel is not about my only about my and your personal forgiveness of sin so that we can have this golden ticket to go to heaven. That's included, but it's much bigger than that. Jesus came for a purpose, for a kingdom, for a mission to the world, for a movement that would impact the whole world. 
Jesus came to restore and to reclaim and to, to uh, reclaim the entire creation to its flourishing. Jesus came to restore all that was broken, all that was distorted when sin entered into this world. Jesus came to make the world as it was intended to be. We just sang joy to the world a lot during Christmas. Jesus came, as, the, as that hymn says, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Everywhere is what Jesus came for, for everything. Jesus came to reign over the whole world to reclaim everything as belonging to God. Which means Jesus came for disease. Jesus came for hurting marriages. Jesus came for hunger. Jesus came for education to the illiterate. Jesus came for the adopting of children, for the feeding of poor, for doing your jobs with excellence, for loving your neighbor and loving your coworker and loving your classmate. You see, Jesus did not come to save us from the world, but he saves us unto himself for the sake of the world. So we, more than anyone, church, should be a people that love the city of Durham, that seeks the flourishing of Durham. We, the followers of Christ, should be willing to step into the places of darkness, take risks, to step into the places of brokenness, to see Christ shine his light in those dark places and to heal that which is broken. The church of Jesus Christ should never be a holy huddle of people who only gather on Sundays and maybe sometimes in city groups, and then we retreat from the world. We should never seek to be safe and to protect ourselves and to protect our children, seeking to only do Christian things. We should be people who buy houses in the city, move our jobs into the city and businesses into the city, help those who are unemployed, spend our money at local businesses, go and listen to local bands, join running clubs, go to festivals, get involved in the school systems, get involved in the government. We are not saved from the world, but we're saved unto Jesus for the restoration of the whole world. We are part of something huge, huge, a movement. And that's exciting. But I don't know if it seems daunting to you. And it can seem daunting to me as a pastor. <laughs> and that's the hope that we have in the second point, is there's power for us in this mission. There's power. Look at verse 1. It says, uh, which is really important. In the first book, talking about the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do and, and teach. And now he's writing the sequel about all that Jesus is continuing to do and teach. All that Jesus is continuing to do and teach. This is why I said this is not the Acts of the Apostles. This is about the Acts of Jesus. Jesus is doing this. Jesus is working. Jesus is accomplishing his purpose and bringing his kingdom to earth. Which means we don't live this mission pointing people to ourselves. We don't live, live in this mission pointing people to Christ's central church. We point people to Jesus. And this is one of the main reasons, as Timothy and I thought about, what do we want to name our church? Christ central. Christ being center. Because this church is not about how cool we are or who the pastors are. This is a church focused on making much of Jesus in all that we do. 
It's about keeping Christ at the center of everything. This is a church where the brokenhearted and the struggling and the weak are very welcome. Because we don't rely on our own strength or on our own goodness, but on the, on the grace and the mercy of Christ. This is a church where everyone is welcome, where all of us know that we need to confess our sins together every week because we all need Jesus. And I hope that brings a little bit of joy and a little bit of the burden off of you this morning if, if you start feeling burdened by this mission. Because if you feel powerless in the mission that we get to be a part of, this mission to the world, this mission of God, if you feel like you're too messed up or, or you're, you struggle with too much sin or maybe you're just not smart enough or you don't have the resources, I want you to know God welcomes you <laughs> to be a part of this mission because it's actually in weakness that Jesus has made strong. It's in our confession that we boast in Christ and what this world needs is to see Jesus. Not ourselves, but to see the King. And our King is the one who rules and reigns over the whole world. We see that in verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, when he, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, that's not saying Jesus kind of put on like rocket propellers, like burst up into the air, and now he's sitting on some cloud up in the sky. Uh, this is very purposeful. This is talking about the ascension of Jesus. This is what's affirmed in the Apostles' Creed. And Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. This is, an, this is imagery, purposeful imagery, where the king is ascending his throne. This cloud is not some puffy white cloud up in the sky. This is the cloud that represents the Shekinah glory of God. This is the Old Testament cloud, the presence of God. This is speaking about the reality that Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, enthroned with power, ruling and reigning over the whole world. The power comes not in ourselves, but pointing people to Jesus. And the power comes because Jesus is enthroned as King over everything right now. And lastly, the power comes through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. It says, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8, which is a key verse in this passage, really a key verse in the whole book of Acts, says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The power of the disciples was in the promise of the Holy Spirit going with them. They were to wait until the Holy Spirit was unleashed, until they received the Spirit. And we'll see this next week, but this is referring to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But let me explain a little bit about the Holy Spirit and why the Holy Spirit is so valuable, this person of the Trinity that we often forget. The Holy Spirit is referred to often in scriptures as the Spirit of Jesus, as the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit always shines light upon Jesus. The Spirit is important because the Holy Spirit unleashes Jesus to the whole world. Now, you might say, well, wasn't Jesus in the world? <laughs> Why did Jesus need to be unleashed into the world? Jesus told his followers, it's better for me to leave so that the Spirit would come. Why is that better, that we have the Spirit instead of Jesus with us? Jesus was God in the flesh, God incarnate, physically present. And Jesus was only able to be present in one place at a time. The Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus enables Jesus Christ 
to be everywhere at all times. The power of the Spirit, if you believe in Jesus, the Spirit is within you, is that wherever you go, Jesus is with you. You go to East Durham, Jesus is with you. You go to West Durham, Jesus is with you. You work at a hospital, Jesus is with you there. You're going through a hard time, Jesus is with you. You travel to Africa, Jesus is with you. He is everywhere because of the Spirit. You know, in in the earthly ministry of Jesus, at the end of three years, there were just a little over 100 followers of Jesus. Three years of ministry, right? Jesus had a little bit over 100 disciples following him. And we're going to see this as we go through the book of Acts. But within days, days of the Holy Spirit being unleashed, thousands would follow. And Jesus and the gospel would spread to the whole world. This is a powerful mission. It's a powerful movement fueled by the Spirit. So I have to ask us, I have to ask myself a lot, do we believe that Jesus and the Spirit and the gospel are powerful? Do we believe it's powerful? I heard a friend of mine say that we believe money's powerful. We believe politics is powerful. We believe military is powerful. But the church, when uh, given money, is at best mediocre in its use of money. The church has been a disaster anytime it gets heavily involved in politics. And the church has been a tragedy anytime it's been involved in military. Yet, there was a small group a ragtag group of followers of Jesus, a tiny group with no economic, political, or military power. And they spent three years with this Jesus, being led by him. And at the end of Jesus' life, these followers leave him. They leave him. Peter denies him. And here we are, 2,000 years later, with billions across the globe worshiping this king. That's a powerful movement. How does that happen? How does a powerless group change the world? The power of the Holy Spirit by the risen Jesus. And hear me when I say this, that God works. It is his pattern of working through what appears weak. It is God filling emptiness and filling it up so that he can be strong. That is how he works. That's how his power is unleashed. And we get this so backwards. I so get it backwards. We think we have to get our act together. And then we come to God so God can use us. We can think God uses the rich and the wise and the powerful, but God uses broken people and empty people who could be filled with the Spirit because that's our power. Now, we have this power for a reason, uh, which is my last point, the goal of the mission. Uh, uh, the goal of the mission. Have you, I don't know if you've ever been on a long road trip with children. Maybe uh, you've said this. Long road trip and... And you go, are we there yet? <laughs> are we there yet? That's what the disciples are asking in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Are we there yet? You see, the disciples thought the kingdom would come one big bang, one big event, and this would cause the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. But God's kingdom comes in stages. Jesus came in his life, death, resurrection, and his ascension secures the kingdom, guarantees the victory of his kingdom, then Jesus will return and the kingdom will be complete. Everything will be restored. But until that day, 
We live in between the already and this not yet of the kingdom. We, be, we live in between these times. And John, John Calvin said this, it is now the task, it is now the task of the visible church to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible. It is to manifest to people what it would be like to live in a commonwealth or a nation or an area ruled by Jesus. We are to be witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom. That's the goal. That's why we're Christians. That's why Jesus saved us. And that's what verse 8 is all about. You will be my witnesses. The goal of the church is to witness, to testify, to proclaim. The goal of the church is to do what Israel would have done when a new king was enthroned. When a new king was enthroned in Israel, they would send heralds out throughout all the land announcing, we have a king. We have a king. And we are to be the ones who go out into the world proclaiming, we have a king. Now, I'm not sure if, uh, if that term witness makes you cringe. Does it make any of you cringe? It makes me cringe a little bit. Uh, it makes me cringe because I think about gospel tracks. Right? I had times when I would just like, throw gospel tracks on people and kind of run. Uh, it makes me think about pressure and guilt. Uh, now, one of our values, our core values as a church, is word and deed. Word and deed. It is to witness and to announce Christ is king through word and deed. We bring people to our king by our speech and by our actions. And there are some of you this morning who need to be encouraged to speak more about Jesus. You have relationships that you've built with people. And now it's time to cross that bridge. Now it's time to cross the bridge and share verbally about Jesus. Are we bringing people to Jesus in word? Do you invite people to church on Sunday morning so they can hear Jesus and experience Jesus? Do you invite people to your city group so they can encounter Jesus? Are you explaining the gospel yourself to your friends? your co-workers, your neighbors, all of you are to be Christians on mission, not just pastors, every single one of you. Are we, are we bringing people to Jesus in word? But, but we also really, really, really need to hear, are you bringing people to Jesus in deed? Not just word, but deed. And some of you need to be encouraged this morning to live in a way that people see a difference in your life. Do they see a difference? And living indeed, it can be really easy. It could be taking time to care for a neighbor, taking a meal to a neighbor. It could be, as help, it could be helping someone who's struggling with addiction. It could be how you treat your coworker. Anything done for the sake of the kingdom and for Jesus as being a witness. So do we live in such a way that our lives announce we have a king? The goal is to witness and I didn't address the end of verse 8, but look at the end of verse 8, which gives further description. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In one sense, this, this is geographic, right? Jerusalem, start here. Judea, a little further. Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Uh, the book of Acts does show the gospel exploding and going from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, which means for us... I'm throwing a lot of application out to you this morning. Uh, our goal is not just downtown Durham. Our goal is downtown Durham, 
for the sake of the city, for the sake of the state, for the sake of the country, for the sake of the world. The church is always, always sent outward. The church is never to be insular. It is always moving out. Which is why if we start caring more about our money or our convenience or our comfort or the little clicks that we have within our own church, then we've failed to be the church. We must always be moving out. Which is why at the end of every service we give a benediction. There's purpose behind everything we do on Sunday mornings if you never knew that. The benediction, the blessing of God sending you back out into the world with the hope as you are out there that we might bring people back in here with us that haven't been a part of, of our community, who haven't believed yet. But in another sense, more than just geographic, uh, a friend of mine, David Jones, uh, said that this uh, is also a focus, this Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, is not just geographic, it's a focus on social and cultural boundaries. Jerusalem and Judea, that would be uh, people that were just like the disciples. Uh, the ends of the earth, this would be people... They've never encountered yet, right? People not like them, haven't encountered them yet. And then Samaria. Samaria was despised by Israel. So this was people they just didn't like. Just didn't like them. Think about that. We are to witness to people like us, like you, which means witnessing to your friends, your good friends, your coworkers, and your family, which if we're honest, sometimes that's the hardest thing to do. Because it's their opinion that matters most deeply to us. So we're to witness people to people like us. We're also to witness to people not like us. People who are different ethnically, culturally, personality. And if we're honest there, that just seems, seems draining, doesn't it? It just seems draining. We, we've got so much work to do. It's too much work to do that. I'm already busy to get to know people not like me. But that is one of the beauties of our church and where God's placed us in Durham. This city is a place of extreme diversity, and we hope to be a church that reflects that. And, and, and then we're to witness the people that we don't like. <laughs> you understand how hard that is, right? <laughs> people you just don't like, we're to witness to them. We have the, we have the goal to witness to people like us, not like us, and that we don't like in word and deed to announce with all of our lives to all people that Jesus is king. To go to the ends of the earth, seeing every barrier broken down so that Christ is made known. One of the first missionary biographies that I read was about Jim Elliott. Uh, his wife Elizabeth Elliott wrote through Gates of Splendor, which describes the slaughter of her husband and four other missionaries. One was Nate Saint. Uh, they were slaughtered by the Aka Indians in Ecuador. All five missionaries appeared on the cover of Life magazine. And after the death of Jim Elliott, Elizabeth moved back to Ecuador and continued to minister to the Aka Indians, raised her daughter in the midst of the group that killed her husband. Some who converted through her ministry babysat her daughter. <laughs> Think about how we want to protect our kids. Rachel Saint was seen there too. Worshiping in a church with some of the very ones who murdered her husband. The only explanation for that is that they were bearing witness to something completely different. To a king and a kingdom that rules and reigns over everything. That's what being a witness is about. 
You don't have to go to the Aka Indians. You don't have to go to Ecuador. We're to do it here and now, wherever God has placed you. At the very end of this passage, I don't know if it's funny to you. I always laugh when I read the very end of this passage. Uh, they're like looking up, where did Jesus go? <laughs> and these two angels come down, uh, and, and they go, you know, they're kind of rubbernecking. And, and uh, these two angels go, why are you looking up into heaven? Uh, this Jesus will come back in the same way which you saw him go. Pretty much going, what are you doing looking around? Get to work. Get to work. Church, we don't know when Christ will return. But we know we're not there yet. And so we get to work. We get to work and we go to the dark places. We go to the brokenness. We move out with love and we witness to Jesus and His kingdom in all of our lives to all people for all time, trusting the power of the Spirit and the power of King Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father right now. Are you living on mission? Are we living on mission? We all want to be a part of something great, a movement, an impact, something that will make a difference. Every one of you. Christ Central, there's nothing more exciting and more grand and more adventurous and more powerful than the kingdom of God coming to earth through the Spirit working through us. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would God, you would help us to believe that. That you would help us to believe that. And that, Spirit, you would move. And that we would be a part of this powerful kingdom. We would see it in Durham. We'd see it in our city. We'd see it around the world. God, give us trust and faith in you. <laughs> it's not upon us, but it's upon you. And so we point people to you. In Jesus' name, amen.